If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to the passage that Miss Amber Gomes read for us just a moment ago, which is Micah 5 2. Micah 5 2. I want you to know that I love Advent candles. I love Christmas carols. And uh, I like bow ties as well. And so if you wonder why I'm wearing a bow tie, it's because I love Christmas songs. And I love gathering with the church on the Lord's Day. And I love Advent. And around Advent, we, we begin to think about Christmas and what, uh, you know, the, 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 the fact that Christ came and dwelt with us. And around Easter time, we culturally, we celebrate that Jesus died and, res- and rose again. And I want to just help you out with something. We as Christians, we're not called to celebrate Christmas in December or at the end of November or whenever, only at Advent. And we're not called to celebrate Easter just on Easter, whatever day that falls on in the year. We as Christians celebrate Christmas literally, literally every day. So whether you sing a Christmas hymn or not, that's that's fine. But I'm not not arguing. I'm not trying to take sides and say, hey, you should sing Christmas earlier, Christmas songs earlier and earlier. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying this. You will be nourished. Your soul will be fed if you listen to a Christmas song in July. And even on January 3rd. It shouldn't be annoying. We as Christians celebrate Christmas every single day. And Easter, we don't just celebrate in the spring. We celebrate as Christians Easter every single Sunday this morning. The fact that we're gathering on Sunday, Sunday and not Saturday, is a small way that we as the people of Christ say he is risen. And so, Happy Christmas, happy Easter. That's why I'm wearing a bow tie this morning. Some of you are asking, what is Advent all about? Advent is about Christ's coming. It simply comes from the Latin word, Adventus, which means coming. Christ's Advent, which was something that the church has looked forward to for the last 2,000 years. The coming, the second coming, that is to say. And even farther All the way back to Genesis chapter three, verse 15, we have looked forward to the first coming. So God's people have always been a people that have been saying, we're looking for his coming. Particularly here during Advent, there are several themes that maybe give the aroma of Advent. If I can use that picture. And over the course of the next five times that we meet, we're gonna look at five separate smells or aromas that encapsulate Christmas. If you think about Christmas, what does Christmas smell like to you? Well, many of you would say it smells like some kind of an evergreen or maybe it smells like cinnamon or maybe, I don't know what it smells like. Maybe it smells like, uh, you know, rubber and, and uh, that, from those new tires that you got just back, you know, put on your new car. Or maybe, they, maybe it smells like a brand new iPhone. I don't know, whatever you think it smells like, but would you indulge me just for a moment and begin to think over the course of the next month as we walk through Advent about the different aromas of Advent not being actual smells but being themes that comprise this season and flavor it, if you will. The first one that we're gonna look at this morning is hope. Hope. Right out the gate, I wanna give you the main idea that I want you to walk away with this morning and we'll 
spend some time talking about that just for a moment, then we'll dive into the text, tinker around in there, pull some components out, and show how that demonstrates and supports what I'm about to tell you. This is what I want you to get. If you get nothing else, that's what pastors say, right? If you get nothing else, get this. I want you to get a lot more than this, but if you only get one, I guess that's fine. This is what I want you to write down. Hope is a confident expectation in and joyful desire for God's promises. Hope is a confident expectation in and joyful desire for God's promises. Quickly, I want to just demonstrate for you how that's the Christian hope is different than the worldly hope. And I don't mean worldly as in some kind of a sinful, like I hope somebody dies or that I can steal or not, not talking about that, but just regular hope. How is it different than biblical hope? Well, just by looking at the definition that I've got for you up on the screen, hope is a confident expectation and joyful desire for God's promises. Well, just regular hope is a joyful desire I might say, I hope that Sarah gets me a brand new recurve bow with new arrows and broadheads and a target to shoot at and even one for both of my sons so we can all go out and shoot together and have a good time in the afternoons. Last Sunday, my family did that. We just went out and and shot bows and I know some of you here like to do the same thing. And I could say, I hope that Sarah gets that. That's a joyful desire in me that's coming out and it's saying, I hope that that takes place. But Christian hope is different than that. You see, I have no expectation that Sarah will actually get that for me. I have no, I couldn't say I have confident expectation. And so a Christian hope differs than just a regular hope, a biblical hope. It differs than a worldly hope in the sense that we have a confident expectation that what we joyfully desire is actually going to come true because it's based in God's promises. It's based on his promises. And we know that God does not lie. And so when he says something, we can, as the expression goes, take it to the bank joyfully. Why? Because we have a confident expectation in God's promises. We have a joyful desire and a longing that those promises that he gives us are not arbitrary, but they are connected to a need that we have. And so we hope. This morning, we're going to be looking at a classic passage. We've already read it, Micah 5.2. Micah is an Old Testament prophet. And so his book is written by Micah in the 8th century BC. And we won't spend a ton of time in the greater context, but just allow me to give this to you. Micah has a rhythm or a cadence, if you will, that goes from doom and gloom to hope. And so it vacillates between the two. The prophet says something, hey, this is a bad thing. This is a gloomy thing. This is a doomy thing. And then they, he, Micah circles back under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He circles back with something positive, with some hope. So this bad thing's going to happen, or this bad thing did happen. And then this good thing's going to happen, or this good thing did happen. So at the beginning of chapter five, it, it speaks of a siege being applied to Israel. If you've got your Bibles open, you can just glance back. The verse before, Micah 5.2, Micah 5.1. It says there's a a siege that's being referred to that we know actually ended up taking place in history. And it's of Sennacherib's invasion and he sieges the city of Jerusalem. And uh, that account is is, is briefly described and alluded to in 2 Kings chapter 18. If you're taking notes, you can go back and check that out. 
It's not all there, but we couple that with actual Assyrian records that are extra-biblical, that are just historical records that we've come across that also support and even date for us. And we can see that that very thing that happens in Micah 5.1 or is, 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 is prophesied about in 5.1 actually takes place in the year 701 B.C. So there's a siege taking place in Jerusalem. This is ultimate shame there and humiliation for, for this king, Hezekiah. The prophet begins to tell about the dire significance of that event that's taking place. And his reputation along with his realm is all just slipping through his fingers like sand through an hourglass. It's a slap in his face. He's unable to protect his people, that, this particular king, Hezekiah. And then, as I said, there's this swoop. Micah 5.1, there's a siege. There's a shame on the people. Shame on this king. And then in Micah 5.2, a prophecy about another king, another ruler, rather, that stands in contrast, one of failure and one of victory. One of defeat and one of overcoming. And this particular verse is messianic. Micah 5, 2, it's messianic. Now the whole prophecy, the whole, the whole book of Micah is not messianic per se, but this particular verse is clearly messianic. In other words, it, it speaks in a prophetic sense about the coming anointed one the chosen one or the Messiah who will in fact deliver God's people and we know now anachronistically as we look back in time we can see that this passage is speaking of Jesus Christ he is the better king he's the king that when siege was laid on him what happened he threw off his attackers and he overcame so that's a little bit of the background. Micah, a book of prophecy, ebbing and flowing, high points, low points, or rather low points followed by high points. And here in chapter five, a contrast of failure and victory. So let's look at Micah 5, 2 again. Let me read this for you. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who's, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, that's our prayer this morning, that we as your people, as we gather around your word, that we would be encouraged, Jesus, as you are lifted up. Would you let us see a clearer picture of Jesus this morning. Father, this is what we pray. And that in seeing Christ, would we also then see you, Father, as we know that you have sent the Son. We pray that you be glorified. We ask that these things be done in your name, Jesus. Amen. As we walk through this text, I really just want to ask three questions, which I think will help us to understand what's taking place in this poetic 
prophetic verse. Three questions are this. Who sent this ruler? There's a ruler that's coming forth. Who sent him? Who's speaking? Furthermore, why has this ruler come? Why will he come? Why did he come, we could ask? And finally, where is he from? Not who is he from, but where, when is he from? So first, let's ask this question. Who sent this ruler? Well, the answer is very clear. It says here, there in verse two, from you shall come forth for me. So this is God, this is Yahweh speaking and he's saying, from you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, from you, through you, will come forth for me or even you could say to me. Out of thee, says Yahweh, speaking by the mouth of Micah, out of thee, out of you, shall come forth for me. I want you to think about, this is a simple point, but think about this thought, that Jesus Christ did not come to earth without his Father's permission, authority, consent, and assistance. He didn't come forth without his Father's permission, without his Father's authority, consent, or assistance. He was sent of the Father, that he would be the Savior of men. We too easily forget that while there are distinctions in the person in the Trinity, there are no distinctions of honor. You see, we praise the Son because of his coming, but his coming to earth was obedience, was as a result of his obedience to the Father. This is a bit complex, but this is, what it, this is the basis of what it means for us to be Trinitarian as Christians, believing that the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost all comprise the Godhead or the Trinity. I love what Spurgeon says about this. He said, what if Jesus came? Did not his father send him? If he was made a child, did not the Holy Ghost beget him? You like that word, beget him. If he spake wondrously, Jesus, did not his father pour grace into his lips that he might be able to minister of the new covenant? You see, when we praise Jesus, when we celebrate him, we also should recognize that he is not operating in and of himself all by himself, but yet in accordance and in communication with his Father and also with the Spirit. And so Trinitarian doctrine is, is built upon these two pillars. If you're writing things down, write this down. They're based on the oneness of the divine essence and the threeness of the divine person. Trinitarian doctrine is based on the oneness of divine essence and the threeness of divine persons. I would attempt for you this morning to draw some type of a diagram or illustration or object lesson, but I don't want to be labeled a heretic, and so I won't. This is a simple truth, and yet it is infinitely complex. But understand it this way, that God in his essence is one. How many gods are there? There is one God. I think of the song often, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. God, one in essence, but three in persons. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And so these are the pillars of Trinitarian theology. That there is one essence, three distinct persons. One God and three 
distinctions, working together in communication, in relationship, in communion before the foundation of the world. Not operating independently of one another, but that when we think of Christ coming, we say God with us and recognize that God with us, God the Son, is not operating separately from the Father, but that he is operating in obedience to the Father. And that may seem like a simple truth, but we can't overlook the fact that Jesus at Christmas time, Jesus at Advent is not operating as if he's some sort of rogue. The Father is angry, and so the Son escapes heaven to try to rescue mankind. This is not what the Bible teaches but that the Father determines to save his people and sends his Son who obediently comes and redeems. And this is just a small picture, just one sampling of how the Trinity works together through the plan of redemption. They perform each of their roles in full cooperation with the others of the Trinity. Each in their own operation. All three members are present. They're all working together. They're not all the same person. They are the same essence. They all are the same nature. And here we see the Father willing to save. The Father sending the Son. And the Son obeying and redeeming. So let that settle in to your soul. Let that really sink in that every act that the son endured, the father willed. Everything from the good to the bad, every step that Jesus took was all in obedience to his father. He did nothing without the approval of the great I am. Not that long ago, we looked at this idea that Jesus spent time in the wilderness, even tempted by Satan to, to, to take stones and make them bread. And yet Jesus says, no, no, I can't do that. Not gonna do, I can do that. I should say, not going to do that. Why? Well, it's implied in that response that the father had commanded that his son not do that. If nothing more than that, a simple command, and what does Jesus do? He submits to it. In every step, in every area, Think of this, that Jesus is in every way connected with the eternal, ever-blessed God. God the Father says, he shall come forth for me. And so who sent him? Who sent this ruler? Who sent the Messiah? The answer is his father. The answer is God the Father sent him. Why is that important? Well, we know because the Trinity, there's a unity in the Trinity. But it's also important that we see this. That the Father is not at odds in some way with the Son. But together they're working together toward the redemption and joy of God's people leading to the glory for the Godhead. And so, who sent him? The Father did. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. But why has he come? Well, we alluded to it just a moment ago, to be the savior of the world. But what does this passage say about it? 
Why has he come? Well, look, it says, one who is to be ruler in Israel. He's come to be the ruler in Israel. He has come to deliver and he's come to judge. He's more than just a king. He is the sovereign. If you're taking notes this morning, that's the big picture for us this morning, kids. That God is the ruler of all things. Why has Jesus come? Why has the Messiah come? He's come to be the ruler in Israel. You know the song, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. It was pointed out to me, how many people do you know that were born kings? Anybody? You say, why well, this one person that I know of that I read about it was, was born as a, as a prince. Well, perhaps he was. But he was not born a king. And yet Jesus was born a king. He was born a child and yet a king, as the song reminds us. Royal blood beating in his chest from the very moment that it began to beat. The first time his eyes opened, the sunset rested on royal eyes. Just a few weeks ago, we were reminded of Mark chapter one that Jesus came to rule his kingdom. And John, John 1.14, or Mark, rather, Mark 1.14 says this, now after John's arrest, Jesus came into Galilee, what? Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. It's time. The kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus has come as king. He's come to rule. One pastor reminds us this morning, the moment that he came on earth, he was a king. He did not wait until his majority that he might take his empire. From the moment that his little hand grasped anything, they grasped a scepter. As soon as his pulse beat and his blood began to flow, his heart beat royally and his pulse beat in imperial measure and his blood flowed in a kingly current. Jesus was born a king, born to rule. And you may say, well, Pastor Josh, have you not read the Bible? Have you not read of Jesus's reception? How was he received? You might remind me this morning that Jesus came unto his own and his own did not receive him. He was born, as they say, king of the Jews, ruler of Israel, and yet he was rejected. And if you levy that this morning, you're right. He was rejected. Jesus, the king of the Jews, was rejected. And so then you ask, well, then does that mean that he failed? That Jesus came born as a child and yet a king that he failed in ruling? Well, Romans 9, we won't spend a ton of time here, but Romans 9 gives us a little bit of a window into that question. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in verse six, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. The Apostle Paul wants us to recognize something. That Israel is not as easy as just saying, well, that's the ethnic 
cultural people descended from Abraham. He says, no, that's not true. He says, there are some who are children of Abraham, but yet they are not his offspring. They are not physically born in the line of Abraham. And yet in some way, they're still considered a part of Israel. And so when we consider this idea that Jesus was born as a king, he came to this earth to inaugurate and install and begin his kingdom here on earth, you say, well, how can that be possible if his own people rejected him? Well, we would still say that Jesus is the ruler of Israel, and yet it's not a physical Israel. It is a spiritual Israel. Jesus was born a king, and even now he rules. And where does he rule? Most evidently, he rules in his church. He's come this morning and established a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of those who make up his church. And so we pray as his people that his kingdom would be more fully realized in the hearts and minds of all people and that he would receive the glory that he is due. And so Jesus, even now, is ruling and reigning in his kingdom. We pray that it would be more fully realized. According to Jewish history, the role of king replaced the role of judge. And so he's not just to be the sovereign. He's also to be, in a sense, a judge. And what does a judge do? Well, judges were chosen by God to rescue the people from their enemies and establish justice and the practice of the law amongst the Hebrew people. So isn't it beautiful that Jesus does exactly that, that he is sent from God the Father to rule his people, but not just to rule his people, but also to deliver his people. And do we not see that Jesus, when he comes as that great ruler, and he experiences, experiences the siege of dirt and the enemy there in the grave that he resurrects, throwing off his attackers and protecting his people that all who would turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus would also be delivered from the sin that besets them and the sin that damns them. And so what has Jesus come to do? He has come to rule, and he is doing that even presently. So the scripture here in this Advent season points us to be reminded where Jesus has come from, who has sent him, I should say, and what he had, had come to do. But the last question that I wanted us to, uh, to address this morning to look at is this. Where is he from? I could have also worded that when is he from? Maybe you caught this. It seems that there might be some sort of a, a, a struggle here, a dichotomy. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Where is he from? He's from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And he's not come yet. He will come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Ephrathah is the ancient name for Bethlehem. And when you use Bethlehem and Ephrathah together, it really distinguishes from the other Bethlehems. You might say there's more than one Bethlehem. Yes, there are more than one Bethlehem. There are more than one Hagerstown. But this particular Bethlehem is in mind. It is, which one is it? It's the one where Rachel died. You remember Rachel from the Old Testament. It's the, it's the place where Naomi lived. 
This is the place where David was from. You remember that, right? That little town of Bethlehem. This is where David is from. And the fact that David was born there, that giant slayer, that rescuer of the monarchy, the the one who was crowned king over Israel and Judah, that was his hometown. In a sense, really, he put Bethlehem on the map. And so Bethlehem, this little bitty cow town, has suddenly become a royal city. And it's ironic. It's just, there's nothing there. There's nothing special, really, about Bethlehem. Mostly the fact that King David had come from there. So who would have actually dreamed that Bethlehem would become this important place, this place that gave the children of Israel, the Hebrews, David. Of all the clans of the tribe of Judah, Ephrathah, that clan, who could really hardly even throughout its entire history put together a a, a respectable army unit. It is what is responsible for giving this great king. This man who is so significant and yet this place that is so insignificant. It reminds us this morning that God can take little tiny things and make big things out of them. If you think of maybe an acorn, have you ever walked into the woods at the base of a an extremely large tree. I've been recently even in the woods and seen trees that I, oak trees that I couldn't get my arms around. And at the base of those oak trees are what? Little tiny acorns. And we're reminded as we see those acorns that God can take little tiny things and make big things out of them. That's sort of what's in view in this moment. That God takes this little bitty place of Bethlehem And he does something mighty through them. He brings up a great ruler. And you look at King Hezekiah and you say, look at this man. Look at the stock that he comes from, the place that he comes from. Is he not amazing? And yes, he is. And yet he is destroyed. He's ashamed. He's laid low. And out of Bethlehem, this man who will rise in the line of David be quite different quite a different story really this passage even just referencing the fact that of the city of Bethlehem is referencing the Davidic covenant so throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament there are several covenants that God makes with his people we think all the way back to the covenant that he made with Abraham moving on down the line and we look and see there was a covenant that God had with Noah, there was a covenant that God made with, uh, or sorry, with Adam first and then Abraham and then Noah, or Noah and then Abraham. I'll get it right eventually. The Davidic line, it falls in those, that list of covenants. And in that covenant, God made an unconditional agreement with David. And this is what he said, that, I, that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that he will come through your line. This is the agreement that he made with David. He goes on to say that the the tribe of Judah, that that God would establish a kingdom through the line of Judah, through David, that he would establish a kingdom that would endure forever and that David's seed would always, a son of David would always sit on the throne. In context, you think, well, well, Saul was the first king of Israel and what happened to Saul? He was a wicked king. 
He was dethroned by who? By God himself and replaced by none other than David. And so David coming in to this role, God says to him, I'm not going to set you aside. I'm not going to replace you in one of your seed, not like Saul's seed, who was killed in battle and never sat on the throne. You, your seed will always be on the throne. It goes on in that covenant to reaffirm that the land that David has, that the children of Israel have, is still a part of that covenant as it was with the Abrahamic and Mosaic. But what began as a promise that David's son Solomon would be blessed, that he would sit on the throne, that he would even go on to build the temple, it morphed into something more there in Samuel. The promise of an everlasting kingdom was in view. Another son of David, he would rule forever. He would build a lasting house. And that reference is a reference to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of David. And it turns out then that this ruler is more than just a future king that's gonna come out of the line of David, that's gonna come from Bethlehem in a sense. It turns out that when you take that with this other passage or part there in that same verse that says, who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. When you couple those two things together, you realize this is, there's something supernatural about this particular individual from Micah 5.2. The expression coming forth, it, it primarily means to, to conduct one's activities, right? The things that this person does, the coming forth, but it has a military connotation to it. And so I believe in a sense it's pointing to the Messiah as he comes forward, his might and his power, which by the way is quite a contrast to the other king that's mentioned in 5.1. And so his, his coming forth, his, his activities, his military might, where is it from? When is it from? Well, look at these next two words that describe. From of old, from ancient days. The expression Old, or the term old, and the one in ancient days, it, it can mean really old. I'll just put it that way. It can mean there is a, t- a date attached to this thing. And it's really, really old, right? But the context, it really, it has to determine the meaning. And so it can mean really old, but it can also mean eternity, and the context is, is pointing very clearly to not just being old, really old, like grandpa, but ancient in the sense that it's eternity past. The word for old that, that's, just, that's translated old here, it's used of God himself occasionally, speaking of his purposes, his declarations, and even the time before creation. We can see that. That's, so we can definitely believe that the words coming forth from of old, from ancient days, is fitting that it not be, hey, this guy, this future king is just really old, he's lived a long time, but that he is actually eternal, uncreated, from before time. And so how can this future ruler be from of old or eternity past? Well, he can't be an ordinary king. He can't only be a son of David. I think this is pointing to something quite different. You see, 30 years before Micah penned that, at least 30 years before Isaiah 
wrote something else. Maybe you remember this verse, Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name, what? Emmanuel. And shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? It's a nickname. You're going to call this guy, not champ, not killer. You're going to call him Emmanuel. Why would you call this person born of a virgin? Why would you call him Emmanuel? Because it means God with us. Isaiah is saying, when you see this guy that comes forward from a virgin, you're going to say this of him. God is with us. And not in some sense like he's on our side, but the the Hebrew literally means he is abiding. He is dwelling with us. And so when we take these two passages, messianic in nature, and we couple them together, we see very clearly that Micah 5.2 is not just talking about some future king of uh, from the line of David, but he is quite literally saying that God will be our king. And that's in keeping with the expectation of Isaiah chapter six. Well, that's the same future king. The word God is used of him. And when, well, and when David uses that, he's only ever speaking of God. And so it's quite clear. This is literally God with us, this ruler in Micah 5 two. If you think about it, you say, well, who is this person? As we look around, who, who, who is this person that, as we sang, is able to open the scroll, able to rule, able to judge, able to defend and protect his people? And from eternity past, the only answer is Jesus Christ. The only answer is Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice something about this prophecy that the Messiah would come forward from God himself that he would come through the line of David out of Bethlehem and that he would be from eternity past born of a virgin what do all these things what are we to think of these things we're to think this that they came true in Christ So this morning we begin to celebrate and be reminded of the fact that Jesus came 2,000 years ago. God took on flesh. Jesus, the son of God, added to himself a human nature. He dwelt among us. He lived, he died, and he was raised again according to the obedience of the Father. And all of this in fulfillment of that first promise that we read of in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. Let me read it for you this morning. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And she shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this prophecy written long ago, we see tied and woven through the covenants of the Old Testament. Fulfilled in the person of Christ. What does all this say to us? It says that when we consider the promises of God, how are we to think of them? We're to think of them with a confident expectation. 
that when God makes a promise, what does he do? Well, he fulfills it. The first prophecy of the first advent long ago held for ages came to fruition in the person of Christ that first Christmas day. And with that in mind, we look to the second advent and we say, will he come again? Well, we hope that he will. And when we say hope, what are we saying? We say that we have confident expectation that he will come again. And what are the promises that there are there for us to hope in as we consider Advent? And that we can actually hope. What promises can we have? Well, that he will deliver us from the power of sin. Some of you this morning are struggling. You say, I, I want to know how this is relative to me right now. Well, not everything has to be relative, relevant to you right now. But I want to give you this. This is a good application. The sin that besets you, Jesus has promised that he will deliver us from. And even now. And so we can have a hope, a confident expectation that the promise that he said that he will deliver us from the power of sin in this life, that it will come to fruition, that we will experience it. And so we at Christmas time, at Advent, as we light candles, we have the hope that begins to stir up in us as we're reminded that he's freeing us from the power of sin. And not just the power of sin, but the curse of sin and the guilt that goes along with it. The judgment of God that we have stored up against ourselves, that he delivers us from that as well. And we have hope that he will return. And we have hope that judgment will be had and that all of the wrongs that have been done against you and against God, more importantly, will be judged and reconciled. And that when God dwells among us again, and as he rules even now, that justice and righteousness will prevail. We have hope in that. Even when we see the evil win and the righteous seemingly forsaken and persecuted, we have hope to say this will not last long. We have hope even now to to say this, that all who repent and trust in Jesus will be received and will not be cast out. This is what we think. think. When we come to this table and we see the picture this candle burning, we're reminded of the hope that we have. And what is hope? It is a confident expectation. It is a joyful desire for God's promises. And so don't just, don't just have a confident expectation. As we enter into this Advent season, also have a joyful desire. Do you not long for, with joy, to, re- to experience the freedom from the power of sin? and deliverance from the, the curse and, and, ju- and, and guilt of sin. And that Christ will return and one day we will dwell again. He will dwell again with us face to face. I hope that this passage this morning and this, t- this time that we've spent will continue to, to build this joy and that it will come out and be expressed as a desire in this confident expectation as we close this part of our time this morning, I want to read a song that we sang a moment ago. This time, as we think about these verses, as they're read and not sung, I want you to really think about what's happening here. I want you to think about the emotion that's tied up in these words. There's a longing here, and there's a hope that we can taste 
and we can smell. It smells like Advent. Listen. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times did give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. He shall come to thee, O Israel. That's the hope that we had this morning. That God with us, he's coming again. He's coming again.